Welcome to episode 161. Today, we talk about practical ideas for newcomers with Pamela Bruchard. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. I used to fear having newcomers enrolled in my class, especially during mid-year. My fear came from not knowing how to serve them. It seemed like there were so many ways to start and so many things you needed to do. I was overwhelmed by where to start, especially when newcomers were middle schoolers or high schoolers. Though I'm not afraid of having newcomers anymore, I still have a lot to learn about welcoming and instructing them. Thank goodness for educators like Pamela Bouchard, who are so gracious in sharing their experiences throughout these years of serving these students. In this podcast, we'll learn from Pamela's decades of dedication to newcomers. Now, on to today's podcast. I'm so excited today to have Miss Pamela Bouchard on the podcast. You're familiar with her on Twitter and also Facebook, and now we get to talk to her live on our podcast. Welcome, Pamela. Hello. Good morning. It is great to be here. It is such an honor. You're one of my edu heroes and to to get to come into your podcast and hang out with you a bit is just a pleasure. So thank you for inviting me. Well, it's an honor to have you because every time you share on ML Summit or other conferences, people are just like, oh, Pamela, so great, like thorough, thoughtful, um, concise, and really implementable actions that the teachers can take away and start um, in their classrooms, in their own context. So you bring theory into practice and we always need teachers like you, Pamela. Would you start us off by telling us how you spend your days and where you spend your days? Okay, well, I'm in Houston, Texas. I'm a new arrival center teacher. I teach high school. Um, My students um, are block scheduled. So I have a little bit more time than some traditional teachers have because we, we're blocked together. Um, and so we sp- I spend part of my day in direct instruction. And then the way our program is set up is a little bit different than other people's is that our students go to classes and then I travel with them. So half the day I'm the lead teacher and half the day with the same group of kids, I'm the support teacher in their, their maths and science classes. So I've been doing that for about... Whew, uh, almost 15 years, I think. And, but I've been in education for 34. I'm in my 34th year of teaching. So. Because you've had so many years of experience, would you share with us a story that has really shaped your practice to this day? Wow. There's just so many, um, just let's see which one. I'll tell you something that's really meant a lot to me. And it is now I'm at, you know, I've passed year 30. So a lot of those students I started with are adults, and you know, now and they have their families and, and things like that. They've been around a long time. And, and so getting uh, these random Facebook messages from students 30 years later said, I've been looking for you for 20 years. I've been looking for you for 30 years. 
and and just saying, talking about the impact of the things that happened in my classroom, how it impacted their lives, what it meant to them. Um, I had some, you know, some really difficult situations where a, a girl really felt like um, she was going to end her life and that life was that difficult. And she decided at the last minute not to do it. And she came back in and she read a letter I'd written to her, something I'd written to her in fourth grade. This is an adult. And she said, you know, I read it. And I thought if she believed in me in fourth grade and she could see it, there must be something good in me. And she's alive and, and, and doing well now and, and things like that. And, you know, it doesn't have to be that big dramatic story like that. But to get those messages three, four, five, and like I said, up to 20 and 30 years later, where they come back and just say, I'm doing this because of you. I, I learned this from you. And so that's really why we all go to teaching, isn't it? You know, it's never about the beaver. You know, who cares about the beaver? Who cares about grabber? It's really about impacting lives. And so um, having the ability to do that and see that over time is just a, just a gift and a treasure. And they always show up right when you need them you know, right when you were not expecting it. So those, they changed my life and they make me uh, teach intentionally, um, have those intentional conversations, take those intentional moments when you're tired, cranky, test test is, is coming up or whatever, just still stop and, and do the things that impact for eternity and impact for a long time. So, yeah. I equate um, my teaching practice to planting a seed and then walking away for the next 30 years and then coming back and seeing a forest. Yeah, that's beautiful. Exactly. Yeah, it's our, we have we have to have faith in, in, our, in our ability to plant seeds and then that seed will grow into this orchard, into this forest where we won't be able to see the growth yet. Right. Beyond our first year, maybe our two years of working with them, but they'll come back and they'll say, look, I still remember this. I still remember mm -hmm. that. I still remember how you made me feel. Yeah, that's beautiful. I like I like that. And I, I like the planting analogy because I often use that when I talk about um, our students, multilingual lear learners, because they're people who've moved, they've been uprooted. So maybe not even just, you do start with a seed, but you, know, you also start with a plant and you put them in a new environment. And, you know, we know that they normally wilt that first few days or, you know, in real life when you plant a new plant and then you get to watch it flourish and grow. And so it's a beautiful, still love the profession for that very reason. It's really a great, great career path for me. And when I think about that analogy, I think about Sir Ken Robinson. He said, uh, the farmer uh, cannot make the seed grow. The farmer can only create conditions for growth. Mm -hmm. So we're just creating the conditions for growth. Yeah. What a fun job, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, before I go to talk about student leaders and with newcomers, I want to tap into your expertise and your assets in this. So tell us about what does it look like to, to, to welcome newcomers uh, into the into the new space. That's super important that we know that beginning is a real impact. And the way it happens at my school is you just have a teenager standing at your door with a total look of terror and fear. You know, the, the, the counselor has walked in the door and said, here's your, here, you have a new student today, you know? And um, one of the things I started many years ago is I tell them, hello, nice to meet you. Um, and they immediately say, I don't know English, no English. And, and I go, it's okay. I said, I'm the world's greatest teacher. 
And um, I said, so no problem. I said, because all my kids learned, everybody can do that. So it, it maybe in the past, you didn't have a great English teacher. You had no English teacher. Um, don't worry, because I'm the greatest and all my students learn. And I, and I do that, number one, because they understand at the high school level, that's probably a joke. But even if they don't, and they think I really believe it, um, it takes the pressure off of them. I'm not a failure. I'm not someone who can't learn. I'm not someone who's not been good in school. Um, I've got someone who is an expert who can teach anybody. And so I say that right. And then throughout the year, it's hilarious because as we get new kids, all the kids in the background go, yeah, yeah, she's the best. You know, and, and, they, and uh, so I, it starts right there at the door. It starts um, actually a little bit before that when they can come in your classroom and they can see things that represent them. There's books on your shelf that represent them. There's artwork that represents them and their culture, you know, and is it possible to have every culture the day before they come into your room? No, you're not going to have that, but they are going to see that you are um, open-minded, that you see different. I, I thought, I didn't know that was a thing until someone pointed out, they're like, you're so open-minded. I'm like, isn't everybody, you know, but but to see representation in your room, whether it's photos or things like that. And that's at the beginning of the year. And I think a lot of people focus on that, but there's things you do all through the year that make students feel welcome. And I check, one of the things I check out myself for is when was the last time my students' culture was um, used in the classroom for the a lesson? or And when was it? it given when were they given voice and I make sure that that hap that's happening throughout the year so for example if you do a food unit they take five pictures and do a how-to paragraph on food that you know traditional from their country um we have to study landforms and history and instead of just using what's in the book you know they have to learn the vocabulary but then they have to get a map from their country and and present and find all the ones, the same landforms from their country. So continuing to weave their backgrounds and their experiences um, all throughout the year. And then raising them up as leaders and giving them voice to where the point that they can self-advocate. Um, and so there's a lot that goes on and it's very intentional decisions. And it's something that an outsider, we've had so many people come to see our program, try to copy it and they, they want the curriculum. They want the books. They want the flashcards. Okay, what did you do? What what worksheet did you use? What what book did you use? And they miss this part. They miss how to incorporate this all year long, and um, and so I think that makes the biggest difference. I really do. Yeah, when I think about culturally responsive instruction, I think about using students' cultures as the mentor text, as the context in which we're applying the skills, learning the content, um, so that it's so that students are able to bring their experience in and say, this is what I know, this is how mm -hmm. I can apply the content because I already mm -hmm. have experience with it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And they can take pride in that. You know, so I've learned about a whole lot of things I knew nothing about. You know, during, co during the COVID lockdown, I had a student whose family were fishermen from Mexico. So I learned a whole lot about fishing that year, you know, and, and, um, and he still comes by now every single day, um, two years later, uh, I think that's two years later. And just to check on me, to have lunch in my room or to see, or to see me because we spent a lot of time. I mean, um, I'll tell you a secret. My sister wrote an, 
wrote a story in third grade about a pencil. She used that same story all the way to the high school. She just rewrote it a hundred different ways. You know, whatever the topic was, her story came back to that pencil and she won an award for it and, and things like that. And I realized even in the publishing world, um, I was wanting to be a children's author many years ago. And I met with some scholastic readers and the, the company, no highlights, so it highlights. And one of the things they said is you can, you know, we're like, what about copyrights? Like you can write the same story a bunch of different ways and different, different angles. And they do that in the publishing world all the time. You publish this in one magazine, you publish it differently in another, but it's the same loop. And same with the students is, is finding their backgrounds. What are they expert in? And, you know, it's really like, okay, so your lesson says write a paragraph about um, comparing, contrasting this and that. You're really, it's really not about that content. You're teaching them how to compare and contrast. So let them compare and contrast what they know, you know, um, so um, leveraging it and, and seeing it, as we always say, as an asset. So. And when we incorporate students' background as mentor text or the context, it, it, there are opportunities for them to use their heritage languages so that they can bring mm -hmm. in, they can read in, they can read text or they can talk in the heritage language or they can uh, interview people using the heritage languages. And so this is how we change language and we incorporate students' um, uh, cultures, but also uh, linguistic assets. And so um, it's sustaining, but also maintaining and expanding on students' uh, languages. Yes, exactly. We were just talking about that with my students because we were t talking about adjectives. And so then when they, um, I gave them some work to do and they gave the sentences back and they were using big, little, happy, sad. I'm like, you wouldn't use that in your own language. Stop for a minute and think. I said, you're high school. What would you say? You would say enormous. You would use a higher level register. And I said, so think about that for a minute. Think of the words from your own language that you would use to describe that. And let's figure out how to say that in English because the default is, you know, I'm one of the ways I ask my students, like, if you say happy, what grade did you learn the word happy? How old were you? Okay, so you learned it, you know, maybe you're three, four, five years old. So when we're doing our writing, because I'm thinking about testing in the back of my mind um, that gets graded by a computer. And I'm like, what, do you know another word for happy that you've learned since that time in your own language? And then they can think of a thousand, you know, different variations. But to ask them to go back to their language and pull that in instead of settling for the most basic level, even if they're newcomers, because my kids come with zero English, 99% don't know a word. Um, and so instead of just going with those e easy words that they've learned, which I need to teach them, but pulling in that rich language, because they've got it at this point, but they just need to realize that it's valuable and they can use it. So would you walk us through like, okay, so you, you work with 99% of the students who come to you are beginners in English. And so how do you structure your units and then your lesson so that it develops their English language proficiency? Well, I wish I had the freedom to do all that the way I want to all the time. But as we know, we all work in systems and systems that have expectations of what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. Um, and then there's those of us who buck those systems a little bit. Uh, so there's a the the, le the lessons, 
we have just switched. We have used the model for quite some time and we switched and there's some hiccups. There's some, some things that weren't working. So we're, we're still working out those details. So my lessons are going to be um, based on our curriculum that has, has been sketched out. It is not a fully developed curriculum from my opinion. And so I always take what I'm required to teach and teach it. You know, I want to have a job. And so I do what I have to do. Um, but then I, I look at that and figure out how can I incorporate these other things that I deeply believe in, which is movement, which is um, activities, which is bringing in my culture, which is meeting the needs of different types of learners. And um, that's a really big thing. You know, I, I do a lot of I, I do the traditional, you know, academic lessons of, you know, here's grammar and here's a grammar lesson and and here's how you, how you use this word and stuff like that. Um, but I also do projects. And when you do projects, I don't do gigantic ones. I do some gigantic ones, but um, but just even at the smallest level, you know, I've got this year of the most unique mix of kids I've had ever. I've got what I would call seven alpha dogs in my classroom. I have never had that many kids who were just like, ready, let's go. And now what you're going to give me now? I've never had that. And so it's, you know, you usually have one or two, but I have seven to eight who, and there are kids who are very successful, book smart. They come from cultures that that's valued. I can say what the teacher said. I can say what the book said. And when I throw in a creative project that was original thought and original ideas, they panic because they've never been asked to think creatively on their own, how to apply it. And so one of my top, two of my top students, you know, their very first exam in biology, they're very upset about it. And they came to me and they said, miss, these questions were not in the book. Show me where they were in the notes. I don't see them in the book. I don't see them in the notes. And I know because your teacher wanted you to apply you had to figure it out, use everything you learned and do something. And that just blew them their, their mind. And so I literally got out Bloom's taxonomy and um, and their, their L1 is Spanish. And I got a Bloom's taxonomy in Spanish and I showed them, I was like, okay, so being able to recall and do this, I said, what is a good student in your country? Because remember my kids are coming from around the world and they'll say, oh, is it, I said, is it the student who can say what the teacher said? And is it the student who can say what the book said? Is that the number one student? And they go, yes. And I have traveled ton to, to 36 different countries. And I always check out the education and I check out what they're doing. And one thing I know, even when I was writing textbooks for Spain, they're they're like, well, you need to, you know, write this out. And I'm like, well, everybody knows this. Like, oh no, no, no. The the teachers who teach English don't teach no English. They're just teaching this book, you know? And so what was right because the student, you know, it's changing now around the world. English, the English level around the world is rising, but they may not know the higher level English, the higher level. So they're just asking kids to memorize things in English or in some systems that is it in their own language and their own culture, just memorize. And so I say, what's it? And I said, let me explain you what a top student is here in the United States. I said, you know, and I show them Bloom's taxonomy. And so we, we honor the students who can come up with original ideas, who come with new ways of thinking, who can create something. To us, that's the highest level. So I know you can, you'll be able to do that. Um, but that is what's higher, and you've got to be able to apply it. And I show them that, and they're like, okay. 
And because they're kids who want to please the teacher, who are used to try, you know, they work really hard to, to turn their own education around. Um, and I don't have always have that conversation um, every year with every student. But, um, you know, this year I've just explained that, you know, for us, a top student looks like this. A top student asks questions. Um, and so making sure back to what you said is making sure that all of that is in my lessons, which isn't naturally in the lessons that the curriculum guide gives you normally, you know, I make sure that there's an application part. I make sure there's a culture part that connects my students. Um, I make sure I do a lot of movement. I was a professional interpreter for the deaf for many years. And, um, and so we sign language and we act out in TPR, total physical response all the time. Um, I have costumes in my room. I have um, props for like all of our history lessons. And so I want it to be move, a lot of movement, a lot of action. Um, and one thing I found is that kids who have been in a rigorous curriculum around the world, they come in and they don't like that. They're, they're like this is too immature or this is, you know, where's the serious work we want to copy from the board and, you know, do the 72 worksheets. And depending on the student, I may have a conversation like, did that work? Like, okay, so that's the way you've been doing it all these years. You've had English in your country now for, you know, five years or since kindergarten and you don't know how to speak it yet. You, you know, and that's okay. That's okay that you don't, but what we know, the scientists say, and, you know, I speak in very simple language because my kids, they're all newcomers. You know, the scientists say that if you move with it or singing or have hand motions, that you're going to remember it better. And then in time, and I, I remember I had a Cuban, a brilliant, one of the most brilliant students I've had, who for a week, he just scowled, looked at me, you know, and because he was just like not into these things. Um, and then I explained to him, the scientist, the research says that this will help you. And he became, you know, he jumped in. I said, just trust me. Trust me. I asked right now that you'll trust me, that I'll get you to where you need to go. But because I've done this a lot of times with many students, he said, trust me and we'll get there. And so make sure I all those components are in the lessons, but they're not naturally in my curriculum. They're not, unfortunately. So you, you take a curriculum, you have standards that you have to meet, but then you add your uh, flair to it. And, and these yeah. strategies really help students engage. So how long do you have your students during the first part? And then uh, how do you structure that? Okay. Um, Todd, I, ha I have to laugh because anybody who knows me and the word structure, they don't usually go in the same sentence. Um, so I have a, like a, basically about a two and a half hour block in the morning um, where I'm direct instruction. And, um, uh, there are so many amazing educators who I would call type A, who are list makers, who have check boxes, who have routines, who um, have a neat desk, who get all their papers in on time, who show up off meetings. And I'm just not that teacher. And I thought for many, many years, I actually considered quitting the profession because I was told over and over that that's what a good teacher is. I had teachers that, you know, good teachers have their desk clean every day. And, you know, how can your kids learn if you don't model that? And I, I mean, just told over and over in so many ways that if you're not type A personality, 
you're not a good teacher. And that was a really hard message for me. Nobody said it in those exact words, but that's how it was. And so then I read a book one time and it said, talked about the 80-20 principle. And it said, spend 80% of your time on what you're good at. And 20% because I was spending all my energy trying to be structured exactly like all good teachers are. And I was trying to be like all good teachers are. And so that took all my energy. And then I had 20% of the energy to do what came naturally to me. So to be honest about that, to answer that question is um, I look at my curriculum that I have, the have tos, the topics and the grammar and the skills that have to be taught. Um, and then I just mix them according to the day, um, what, feels right. And I know that that is making going to make a lot of administrators cringe when you hear that, but I've never, I always get to the goal. My kids get there. My kids are successful. Um, but I have very few routines, a very few structures that are typical. Um, I'm going to introduce vocabulary. We're going to act it out. We're going to move while we're doing it. Um, we're going to have games around that that vocabulary because I'm teaching, you know, a lot of just beginning vocabulary, colors, days of the week, months of the year. Like we're starting there, you know, and we start with those basics. So among all of those, there's going to, again, there's going to be activity. There's going to be movement. Um, we're going to compare and contrast cultures because I've done this for quite a while. You know, a lot of the cultures that come into my classroom are cultures I've had before. Um, it kind of bothers me sometimes you'll hear people in this profession talk about, well, you just need to know their culture, their background. Well, that's really great, but you know, it's day one and you have 17 new cultures that you've never had. Again, I'm fortunate because I've done this a long time. So there's a lot of repeating going on, but there's always somebody new from a new place. I don't know. Um, and so because we're newcomer, we spend a lot of time on that beginning vocabulary building. Um, we tried to, my program tried to move a little bit away from it this last year. It was a disaster. I warned them. I'm like, this is coming. This is coming. You can't move away from this and just move over to this, the, you know, traditional lessons. Um, you've got to build the vocabulary. And what we found was second semester when I had the students and it was time to really start doing that heavy academic. Our kids had nothing to write about. They didn't have the vocabulary to write about. It wasn't that they weren't smart, but the, but because the vocabulary had not. So we we're very heavy in the vocabulary in the beginning. Um, units about that. Um, and then reading and a writing. Um, but our curriculum does not have that as a basis. And so it's something I just have to do on my own. So tell us what uh, the vocabulary games are that you play with your students. Okay. I just learned a really fun one. We just did this week. It was really a blast. Um, I, I put it in my Facebook group. So it, I didn't originate it. Most things I don't originate. I'm a professional stealer. Um, I, you know, I just find great ideas and collect them. But um, one was they put them on the, the word on the plate, uh, on a paper plate. We write them and then we say go and then you pass the plate. And it's kind of like Duck, Duck, Goose. Um, the person in the middle will say two categories and they have to switch and change. So that's just a simple review of, of that. And then whoever didn't get the seat moves out. So we did Thanksgiving words. We had food words and family and who might be at the table and they might say pumpkin pie and a grandma. And those people have to run and get a new seat. So that's a very simple one we do. 
But um, we also do things like I part of our program is teaching American history. And so we do, you know, five, there are five reasons that explorers came to the new world, you know, and we might act it out, Christianity, uh, new foods, and we're going to use physical um, TPR and, the, and sign language sort of things. We draw it on our hand, um, on our paper, and we have pictures that we match up with that, and then they learn it. And so my kids have to learn to present orally. I make them memorize a lot. And that's not something I would have done naturally. I worked with a really bright, a brilliant master teacher. And she was like having her kids memorize passages and memorize things. And I just thought that was like, that's so early. Why would you do that? You know, and now I do it often and where they have to present something they've had to memorize. And we start with the Pledge of Allegiance, not because I want them to feel like they have to be you know, allegiance to the United States, but because it's part of my culture, the cult, the mainstream culture, they have to memorize it. And it's, that's the first thing they memorize. And it's words that are really weird. And like, why would you do that? Because it's my cult, the cult, the mainstream culture, I want them to know it. And they can say it really, I've had because it's the first thing they ever learn. And we talk about, we talked about pronunciation um, and the vocabulary but then, like I said, now we're at a history unit. They have to explain all of it to me. They use the vocabulary. You know, we've learned it. We've acted it out. We've taken notes. We translate it. We translate the vocabulary in their notes. They can translate it. Um, we find things that represent them, you know, like, okay, so we're doing landforms, you know, you know, mountain, mountain range. And we act it out with our hands. Um, and a lot of people like to use the Frere model. I know people love that. It's not near and dear to me. Um, I don't like, what is it not? That frustrates me. I don't want to know what something's not because they're going to re remember that part and not the other three sections, you know, it, and it's great. It works with a lot of people, but in my room, um, we don't use that. Um, like I said, we have, we have races adding the S's to words, third person S, you know, um, I, we don't have them this anymore at my school, but we used to have sword fighting. So um, I would get the swords and I'd put them at the end and we'd I would say, he jump and I'll say jump and they'll say he, and they, they run and they do that to draw an S on that for first person, third person S or not. And if they do, they have to pick up the sword and go like that, make an S, you know, or they, and I'll say run and, you know, and they may have to, and then they go, do you pick up the sword or not, you know, and, and things like that. So we might do something that crazy. Um, let's see, what are the other vocabulary games? Cool English. I don't know if you're familiar with that website. He, I've interviewed John and he is amazing. His, he creates really fun content, really fun. And he does it in really cool ways. So high, my high school kids love anything that I use from there um, because it's a lot of games. It's a lot of songs. It's current, it's hip and it's cool. So we do a lot of, um, we use, I use his website. There's a free version and a paid version, um, but it's definitely worth it if you teach secondary. Would you tell us, uh, let's move away from vocabulary and let's talk about reading. How do you uh, develop students' reading abilities in English? Okay. So our program, that's an area that they don't prepare, have much of. So, um, 
and, and actually I use it more towards the second semester. We just started a new curriculum. I said this last year, there are small reading passages there. Um, I have a bilingual, most majority of my students speak Spanish. Um, and this year all, which is the first time in my whole career that's ever been that way. Um, it will change by next, in, in January I'll be mixed, but this, it just fell that way this year. Um, so first of all, we do, we use the history, our content um, for the reading lessons in the beginning. We also within our curriculum have short reading passages. Um, we have a systematic phonetic program that the students are working through online and they have to do that an hour a week. Um, and so we can rate their progress. That is a new thing. I'm not sure how successful it is. Um, because it's new. There's other teachers who've used it and they really liked it. It's, it's a System 44 Read 180 um, type of program. And um, I'm I'm watching. I'm my I, I'm refraining from deciding what if I what how I feel about it until I see the results. But the kids are working on that. So we're using it in contents, you know, in content. Um, we go through, we read, I read passages. Um, I read them and they listen. I read at a slower pace. I read, they listen, then I read, and they um, highlight words they don't know. Then we discuss those words that they don't know, and then we chorally read um, together. During that time, there's words that are highlighted. If they're highlighted, you stand up. If they're not, you sit back down. So there's movement going on in the middle of that lesson. That's not my design, but that's there. Um, and then, and then I start looking to see who is not able to follow that. You know, when it's within context, because are is it just an L1, L2 transfer of skills, or is are, are the skills not there? And um, last year I had 50% of my class were SLIFE, 50%. It was a huge task to get them reading and writing. Um, and this year I have, you know, one, two, you know, so it's very different when it's not most, when it's not the critical mass, you know, usually it's a few. So with those students, I immediately get my assistant involved. And I, if it's, a, if Spanish is L one, I'm like, read with them, ask them questions, tell me what, can they do this? Another resource I've used at my school is we do have a Spanish teacher who gives a Spanish leveling test every year for completely different reasons to just to figure out what level Spanish class a kid will be in. But when I have cases where I don't know what's going on, I'll sometimes ask her, can you give your test? So what can this kid do in Spanish, even though her test isn't designed for that? Um, but her expertise is in reading and writing in Spanish. So she can tell me right away, this kid is not able to do this, or he is, or he's doing it at a kindergarten level when you know should be at a seventh, eighth, ninth grade level. So I, I try to clear that out, get that S, get that background, find out who's in the back, what is their background, do they have missed schooling? Um, and trying to figure out, you know, is there slife or is there things going on? One thing that's surprising to me is I've rarely, I could probably, I mean, I don't think ever had a parent come to me at the beginning of the year and say, these are my kids' issues. They don't tell me that. That child may have been in special ed since kindergarten and nobody tells me, you know, the parent knows that, but they don't share that information. And um, 
and for whatever reason, you know, they're busy, they're stressed out. They figured we'll figure, you know, that there's a different cultural ideas around the world is, you know, parents involved or not involved, you know, uh, dear friend of mine was looking for a house in the United States and the realtor said, oh, in this school, here's, you know, the parents, there's a lot of parent involvement. And my friend who is a polygot and her husband is a genius and she's a genius. They're like, oh, this must be a really bad school because the parents are involved. And you're like, no, no, no. In our culture, that's a good thing. So there's ideas different, you know, of, of parents' involvement and how much they share. And, you know, we consider them experts on their child. Um, but, and so we want that information. So I call those kids in early, those families in, you know, and beginning of my career, I waited, you know, usually it was like second semester till I've tried 25 things. I've done everything I could to make sure that this kid's successful. I don't do that anymore. When I start seeing things that are off, that don't make sense to me, I call them in right away. Like, does this child have missed schooling? Has he ever repeated a grade? Um, has there been any major events, that, traumatic events that have happened? Is this child living with the same people today as they lived with in their home country? Because you're going to see a huge difference. And all of that impacts reading, you know, all of that. And so in my reading instruction, we start with context. We start with um, stories about kids at school and John lost his backpack and very simple stories um, and stories we do with American history, which is, starts off with just geography lessons. And then we move on. So kids are really familiar with that. And then we add and add and add. And again, that's when I'm going to include a lot of, um, as we say in the profession, mirrors and windows, I'm going to include literature that they can relate to on my um, webpage, which is leadingells.com. Um, I've collected 96 stories from around the world of immigrants who've come and been successful. And so we, I use those in my teaching, you know, and we know it, you know it, but it was fascinating that when I presented these, gave them a, a choice of what to read, the Asian student, boy, pick the story about the Asian man, you know, the, the, the child who had watched someone murdered in front of her, read the story about a person who had had a family member murdered in front of them. You know, the kid who, who is very into science, you know, because, and you just saw it, like you wouldn't even have to go to college course and learn that that's what you're supposed to do. You saw them naturally gravitate to the stories that mean something to them. And so I try to work through reading through that. And then even with the reading, um, something I started kind of by accident that has had a huge impact is having them read into Google Translate, uh, Google um, voice typing. And I had a student, he was Vietnamese and I've had lots of Vietnamese students. So I'm very accustomed to the, to the accent, but we couldn't understand him. And his friends couldn't even understand him. His accent was very different. Um, and he was really smart. I mean, we all knew that he was a top student. He got everything correct. He had a hundred average, you know, on almost everything he did. But when it came time to talk or read out loud, it was just, we couldn't understand him. And one of the things we do is I have them read things into Google voice typing. It is the best teacher because it's individualized per student. Whatever mistakes they're making, I cannot correct pronunciation of 20 kids at a time. Google Translate can't, Google, not Translate, Google Voicemail can't, voice 
typing, Google voice typing. And when you first start it, they'll say, oh, this is wrong. This is crazy. This doesn't work. And they're really frustrated for about three to four minutes until they get it. And then they learn and it self-corrects. And this boy who none of us could understand, um, I don't know, some time had passed. And then one day I called on him and he's like to read. And he's like, yes. And he read and the whole class did that turn because we all could understand him. I'm like, what happened? He goes, I read every night for 30 minutes in in Google voice typing. And it will tell you me, told me exactly where my mistakes are. And I fixed, was able to fix them. Now, this is a kid with a lot of desire to, to communicate and for people to understand him. But I do it with a lot, all my students. We do, we practice so they can become better fluent readers by that. And that was just, you know, we did it as an activity one day um, just to prepare for testing because they were going to, you know, be on the computers and the computers were going to grade them. But I found it's actually great for improving their reading, their oral fluency, because it can directly hit what they need help with. So um, we do that. We work. I do not do sight words um, in isolation. We do them within context. Um, we do have vocabulary lists that we work on in reading. We work on themes like here's food words, here's clothing words. But we're also going to work um, from literature. Here's all these words in the literature that are new. We're doing it through our history. Here's the, here's that. So I would say majority of my students in all every year, but last year, um, really can read and write in their own language at some level. And so we're usually not starting from scratch. So we do it within context. You do a shared writing, shared reading, um, and it grows and develops from there. Just take a few minutes to talk us to talk to us about the writing process, uh, the writing instruction you use with your students. Okay, so for writing, um, again, my curriculum doesn't really have much for writing. So again, it's from us. So in the beginning of the year, first of all, first week, I'm having a coffee from the board. Can they do that? You know, who can and who can't, depending on your language system. You know, if you're coming from Arabic, you know, the letters are going to be kind of crazy, very different. And you may have never written in English before. Um, or if you have a learning disability or a visual disability or you can't see the board. So week one, I'm having them copy a paragraph from the par from the board because I want to, you know, Tom, we don't have enough time. And so, you know, I used to like casually develop. No, I'm on it. We're going to find out real quick who's got vision problems, who's got writing problems, who's got copying problems, um, uh, who can't read in their L1. And we want to really address those right away so that we can see the most success. So we start with um, the beginning of the year. We are writing a lot of um, uh, sentence stems, paragraph stems, a paragraph um can't remember what we call them, but it, paragraphs um, that have already had the structure laid out for them where they're filling in the blanks and things like that. I'm wanting to make sure they can indent um, at the beginning. So by Christmas, um, I want to make sure my kids all know how to line up a paper on the paper. They're writing on the right side of the paper. They can write um, from models and sentence stems and they can begin to incorporate. We're right at, like I said, we're, we're about three weeks from the end of the semester. So now I'm asking students to put in their own information, their own, you know, when we're writing about um, um, clothing or we're writing about uh, food was where we were last week. 
um, where they're adding in their own extra, you know, I've already taught adjectives, I've already taught this, and now I want you to start to write your own, your own pieces. Second semester is when I really, we really hit the writing process hard. Um, and then that's what I'm actually going to, you know, teach topic sentence and, and supporting details and things like that. I find that we really need that first semester to work on complete sentences, to work on parts of sentences, um, to work on the grammar structures of sentences. One thing that I find fascinating that nobody, re- or I mean, that's, that's I shouldn't say it that way. Rarely do my students know how to use a period. Uh, and we've had arguments um, from kids around the world He'll say, no, 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 we use commas. And I'm like, no, that's not correct. I'm like, the period goes in the same place in Spanish and in English. And this year I had a student say, but a period is a stop and a comma is a pause. I'm like, well, that's great, but you still have to have a period at the end of your sentence. You know, because they weren't even sure of, of where that went and why it went there. Um, and that takes a little time to work that out, to work out where periods go in. Um Although it seems like a very basic skill, it's not because when you're listening into a new language, it just kind of goes on and on. They don't know where it stops. And so we model it, you know, with with charts. We use uh, computer things as well, Google Slides and um, group group writing together. And a lot of that is first semester. So... um, we also have students, we have a program called PALS, Peer Assisted Leadership Students. These are the leader school leaders and they come in the school and they will help us with our writing also by se- in second semester. We don't do that first semester, but second semester. Um, they help with our writing too. So it's, it is direct. It's piece. We do the pieces, we use the model and then you pull back those scaffolds and then, and you again, give them rich text and you give them rich examples and motivating examples and comprehensible input where they can see things that they like and they can add them in and um, be hungry to write well and give them topics that are compelling to them. You know, um, that's important. And that's a little bit hard to do because you do have a curriculum that's driving you. You do have what we call benchmarks. We don't call them that, but I'm mean, in my program, but you have targets you're trying to get to. So you think sometimes you don't have the time for, for the other, but here's a secret. I've done this, like I said, for 34 years. If you'll invest in the SEL, even if it takes a day, a day of your academics, you will get longer lasting results than if you just hit those academics we have state testing every year and, you know, often we'll take the kids out to play soccer afterwards because they're exhausted. And when the kids see that you respect them and understand they'll work harder for you the next day, you know? So when you've got curriculum that you've got to get through, but you bring in something that they can relate to something that is not in your curriculum, but that is, gives an emotional connect like the 96 stories I have that kids can choose from to read and listen and and things like that, that carries them a whole lot further. And that's the stories they come back and tell you. I remember when I, you know, things like that. So where did you get the 96 stories? I just started collecting them off the internet. I just collected them all and, and I realized, and then I just keep adding on the list. And so now it's just a Google slide collection of, of links from around the web about, oh, here's this Afghan who who during Thanksgiving, during COVID went and delivered food to people. 
or here's this um, uh, gentleman who was a Viet- Vietnamese refugee who came, a family came in a boat and he came and he came here and now he's a principal of a school. Uh, here's um, a beautiful story about a ballerina. She's she's was born in Africa. She had, I'm not going to remember the name of the condition, but it's a skin condition where you have white splotches. So she was called a devil's child within her community. Her mom, her dad, mom and dad were killed or died young. And so she goes to an orphanage because nobody wanted to raise this type of child with this physical defect um, in their eyes. And she gets adopted um, by an American family. And she still has to work through that. Um, and during the time she was in orphanage, she saw a picture of a ballerina, a newspaper article thrown to the gate. She sees it. She didn't know what it was, but she said, that woman looks happy. I want to be happy too. So she asks her teacher, what is that? The teacher tells her it's a ballerina. The teacher provides dance, dances, teaches her how to dance. And then that teacher gets, that's the one who gets killed. And so it really impacted her. And so when she, when she got adopted, she showed that picture to her new mom and she wanted to do that. And now she dances for the Holland Ballet, you know? So she's overcome so much. So I, man, I just feed my kids stories of overcoming, of winning, of success, of having your back against the wall um, and, and overcoming. And so there's great stories like that, that, that I use in my classroom. Have you? Um, yeah, it's on my website. If you go to leading ELLs and I, it's under the category of representation and um, it's all free and, and it's, it's nothing I've written. I've just collected. So we only have a few minutes left. I just wanted to ask, what do you do very briefly when you, the second half of your, your day, when you work with students in their content classes? Mm-hmm. Okay. So in, in our program, we go into biology and we go into algebra, we go into the science and the math. And so there's lots of different models. There's co-teaching models, there's support, there's different. And um, our district has called it language support. So it's not a co-teaching model, um, which is a little bit frustrating if you go in thinking that that's what it is, but it's actually support. And so it's a little bit a little bit more on the fly than, than obviously co-teaching, but we go in with them and we have excellent teachers who are teaching those content classes at this point. We don't have any, we don't have newbies. You know, we had a new, we've had new, our math teachers have rotated through the years, but our science teachers have been doing it for 15 years. So in that, I may pull small groups. I may work on, um, I may work on with one particular student in that class who's struggling. Um I may, and again, this would depend on your relationship with the teacher. I may stop a teacher and say, wait, I think we're not getting it. Um, or I'll play, you know, play around with the teacher and say, wait, are you saying this? You know, or, you know, or, or, would another way to say that be this? Um, our teachers are good providing visuals. But last year I had a brand new teacher working with newcomers who just talked and though what he was saying was great, and though he had a heart for our students, he didn't realize how long he's talked without any kind of visual. So, so we had to, you know, I was working with him on learning how to do that, but I may just, you know, draw a picture on the board, 
or you know, pause a teacher. That takes time to build that rapport with the teacher. Um, I had our, our science teacher is just an amazing type A, systematic, ready to go. So to have interruptions for her was difficult. That's something that did not feel comfortable and natural to her. And I know you've had some, uh, you you worked through having a co-teaching situation where you had to find y'all's balance um, as well. And so at this point, because we've worked together, the trust is there. And so if I jump in, it's not a problem. Um, and I also might give oral test or I might listen, take kids out of the room. And and because I know some Spanish, I may reteach something in Spanish. Um, I may highlight words, keywords, say, don't memorize this whole thing. Just memorize that when you see this word here, it's going to go with this word here and put them together. So something very, just a very small strategy um like that in algebra um i'll pull kids who are lagging behind um if they don't know the academics and go back and teach some of those basic skills for them um, we're fortunate that our um our math teacher is bilingual in spanish and so she can really help those spanish speakers so that i can focus on the Vietnamese or the Arabic or the the um, Urdu or wh whatever other languages might be in the room and work with them. Um, both teachers do their vocabulary where kids have to have the picture and they translate into the original language. So both teachers in both contents understand that they're language teachers. And so we often have kids who are like, oh, well, I finished you know, algebra two in my country, why am I in this class? You know, this is lower level math. Why? And we actually had a Chinese student a couple of weeks ago who was new and just said, we, we learned this many years ago. And we're like, yes, you learned the math, but this math class is to learn the English and of the math, because you're going to be tested in English, the English of the math, as you know, um, tests around the world in math today are not calculation. They're word problems. And if you don't, have vocabulary, you know, then you're not going to do well. And there's a young man that I helped raise. He was Arab and he was brilliant. He still is brilliant. And he um, was in his first year in college and was taking a chemistry class. And their teacher was not very great. It was community college and, and he was just okay. And so most of the kids weren't getting it. They never had it before and they weren't ready for it. So my son, Mohammed said, okay, I'll take all you guys meet. We'll meet in the library. So he took every kid to the library. They all met and he tutored and he retaught the classes to everybody. Day of the test came. Everybody passed the test and Muhammad failed. And he went to his teacher and he said to them, I taught this whole class how to do this. Well, the thing was, is he had to put the chemicals in, in um, increasing order he didn't know that or decrease in order or something like that. He didn't know the word increase. So he got the entire chemical table wrong. And Muhammad argued with his professor. Look, he goes, I can tell you the order and I can tell you their values and which ones go together and what is the parts and what reactions you would have. I can tell you all of that. He goes, I just didn't know that word. And the professor wouldn't change his grade. Vocabulary within the content is critical. Muhammad did fine. He was, you know, he figured out and he built his own vocabulary in, in, within the sciences and within that. But at, back in that, that day, you know, 20 some years ago, we didn't know how to do that. 
we didn't know to build that academic vocabulary among the content classes. So we really focus on that. Both of our teachers do that. And if they if they don't, if they you know if they if they're skipping something, which that doesn't happen anymore at our school, but um, but if they don't, then you know I build that as well with them. I might bring it back into my classroom, and then we ask them. You know, when we hit after Christmas, we hit that testing season prep. And I wish that wasn't true, but it is. And um, so I make sure that, you know, I'm having my kids read and write about math, read and write about biology. And, and so making sure that they can use this academic because our state exam now is content, has a lot of content in it. And so like Muhammad, you could miss the whole thing if you miss one word. So it's really important to build that. Well, this has been a wonderfully practical and inspiring podcast. I'll end with this question. After 30-some years of working with newcomers, what do you know that's absolutely true? If I don't win them emotionally, I will never win them academically. And that I love the job still. <laughs> I don't think I know for sure, but I still love it. When I often don't speak in a podcast it's often because i'm listening to a master teacher and they're, they're swirling in their, their divine dance and i'm just mesmerized by it so i've been mesmerized by this podcast conversation and i know that teachers will appreciate it so much you have many books in you that are waiting to sprout their wings and take root well thank you todd it's been a pleasure to be here and you are one of my heroes you produce great material um, I refer people to you all the time and to your the things you've created and the, your leadership in this field is greatly appreciated. And uh, it is an honor to to sit among giants and, and in the field and learn from you. So thank you. Oh, no, you are right next to me on the march towards equity for our students. So I am equally honored and inspired by you. So Pamela, thank you so much. Thank you. I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field. I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things at work and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. Now onto our recap. Were your notes full of practical ideas from Pamela? I especially like the one about Google voice typing to develop students' pronunciation skills. I think I should use Google voice typing myself. As I listened to the podcast, there were themes that repeated in her work, such as developing relationships with each student, gamifying learning, and incorporating students' experiences as the content for learning. With these alone, we will go far with our newcomers. Thank you for listening. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode. 